Welcome to another episode of Lily High on Life. And we have a special guest today, Hannah Baum. And Hannah is originally from England. She's been broadcasting herself for many, many years and has broadcast from around the world with some really interesting stories. Uh, she came to Australia. She was married here, has two children. And Hannah, welcome to Lily High on Life. Wow, Lily, what an incredible introduction that is. Thank you so much. You you actually beat me to it. I think I said to you before I wanted to interview you, but you... We'll you do both. It. We'll do. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for being with us today. So Hannah, start off by telling us what it's like to live in Australia as compared to London, because yeah. you, you lived the first 30 years of your That's life right. in London. And so... What, what, so I'll tell you what it was. Yeah, what, what, was what it? did you see as in the beginning as being the difference? Okay, so it was London to Sydney, but before London, it was Scarborough in Yorkshire. And what was interesting about Scarborough in Yorkshire is we were the only Jewish family in this quite waspish environment. You know what that means, white, yes. white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. I remember seeing my first coloured person, black person, I remember saying to mum, mum, that person's black. I mean, <laughs> saying this, you know, not in a racist way because never see anybody, you know, so you can understand that. So here we were, a family, Baghdadi Jews. My mum was born in Manchester and everybody else on the family tree, which does go back to about 1757, were all from Baghdad. And most of them were first cousins. Huh. Yeah. So very royal family we were. Which know. are dark skinned, yes. but just not black. We, yeah, oh, no, <laughs> not so. Yeah, olive skin, you like to say. Anyway, so, um, so for the first 18 years, I lived in this Scarborough and I must say my religious identity was a little bit different to what it was when I was in London and definitely to what it was in Sydney. So it was like a transitions. Um, so you're asking me, what was the difference between living in Australia and living in England? So you asked me about London. So I suppose the difference for me was that this was a breath of fresh air in Sydney. I, I did things that I'd always wanted to do. I'd always wanted to be a journalist. I'd always wanted to um, be a freelance journalist and also broadcast. And I hadn't done that up to now. And so those things I did. So Australia gave you opportunities. Yes, that I didn't have in, 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 in London. I had worked as a community worker there. I'd worked in research. Um, I was just starting out in, in journalism. But I'd never really done the broadcasting. So that was the thing that really... I did the English as a second language and broadcasting and was there a difference in the people people in australia and yeah, people in london definitely people were so much more open and friendly and i don't know it just felt as i said it was like a breath of fresh air after coming from from england um people in yorkshire were a bit different from the people in london the people in yorkshire were more warmer people people mm. always used to say um, you know, we used to speak like this, you know, <laughs> and um, yeah, and we used to have Yorkshire pudding, my mum used to make, so we had a very interesting eclectic um, menu, we would have kibba from my grandmother. Oh, I love kibba. Oh, you know, love it. You know, I made course. it for the first time, Lily, in years and years and years, I made oh, it for Shabbos. It. 
So Kuppa is like a yes. Iraqi and, and Iranian. So I made Kuppa Schwinder, which is beetroot with beetroot. Wow. So, and I must tell people that you are Orthodox, Jewish Orthodox yes. now. You live an Orthodox life. Shabbat, you yes. keep Shabbat and yes. kosher and everything mm-hmm. like that. But it was different for you growing up in London. Correct. You actually went to a Catholic school. Yeah, not London, not London. It was Sorry, Scarborough. Scarborough. Scarborough in Yorkshire. You know. oh, England. Yeah. I'll say England yeah, instead yeah, yeah. of London, but that's what I meant. Yeah, but it was funny because... Here I was in a home where my grandmother was the influence in the home. She spoke only Arabic. I was her English teacher and we used to have this English by radio. I always remember this. We had a wireless, you know, big wireless and and the English by radio and I was her teacher. So I started off teaching English as a second language to my grandmother at about the age of eight or something and I loved it. And then I started to learn a bit of Arabic, and that was good, because then I could understand a few things that my parents were saying. And my grandmother was such an enormous influence on our lives. She was religious, and we didn't realize how religious she was. She even wore a scarf, she davened, she even, I think, if I'm not mistaken, she even had a cavort, and you know, she washed everything, you know? But your parents weren't like that. Well, my father was until he came to England, and that was a little bit of a, you know, shedding of whatever. Um, And my mum was brought up in a traditional home. But as far as I understood, my grandmother was, I was told by my cousin in Tel Aviv, she was the religious one. She was the most religious one of the family. And we were fortunate enough to have her and so that the religion was there, even though maybe it wasn't expressed, you know, but so it was there. She, so how did she feel about you going to a Catholic school? Oh, my gosh, I don't know how she felt. Look, I think, quite frankly, Lily, can you imagine what this poor woman felt when Hanukkah was Hanukkah? We didn't celebrate Hanukkah, but we celebrated Christmas. And my father would go up the stairs. We had a very big Victorian house, three or four floors, and we had what was called a maid's room, you know. Yes. Because my mother was working full-time, whatever. And in this maid's room, there was this Christmas tree. And the Christmas tree would come out every year without fail. And my grandmother, <laughs> Nani Simcha, as soon as the she would say the the apple of my eye you know my son what are you doing it is a Christmas tree and we used to put tinsel on it and I don't know what and we even put mince pies out for the for for Santa Claus and we had a a sock which we oh my gosh so I didn't know about Hanukkah I didn't know about Purim I didn't know about Shavuot but I knew about Pesach and I knew about Rosh Hashanah and I knew about Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur was the day that my father was the one day he used to go to the cinema. There wasn't a shul. So he would be in the dark and he would be in the cinema. But he would close the shop. <laughs> it was... There was, it was no weird. shul? There was no shul. Really? There was a man called Mr. Shoeshine. He didn't shine shoes, but he was called Mr. Shoeshine. And he lived in Golden Screen in Henley's Corner. And he... He bought these amusement arcades in Scarborough. It was a good business. He was only there in the summer, and they had a flat. Um, not far from there, it was, I remember it was St. Nicholas Street, and he had a Jaguar car, I think, 
And he used to come up and down from London to Scarborough and whatever. And once or twice I used to come up and down with him. And on one occasion, I remember he came to our house. We had, as I said, this very big Victorian house with very high ceilings. And it reminds me a mm. bit of Rip and Lee with those yeah. three ceilings. And I remember once he said, Mr. Salmon, if you can get me a minion, I will get a shul. I will build a shul. A minion? There was my father and his brother and his son and his son. So there were four that we knew from the family. The rest had all assimilated. Maybe we could have got a minion, but Dad just said, I don't see how And we what could about kashrut for your grandmother? Oh, so it wasn't exactly what I would call kashrut today. But I used to be the bearer of the, of, the, of the kosher parcel, which used to come from Hull which was the nearest, actually Leeds and Hull were kind of a little bit not far from each other, but we used to get this this parcel that used to come from Hull and I used to have to collect it every Thursday, I think it was, from the bus station. Can you imagine what it was like on a hot summer's day to collect this parcel, which had been, there was no refrigeration or anything. So I'd collect the parcel and that was for Nanny and she had her own pots. Look, Today, we wouldn't say it was 100% kosher, you know, mm. but in those days, it was pretty good, you know. And so she kept what she could keep. And then you also tell a lovely story about how you learned more about your own religion. Yes. Because the um, people at the Catholic school yes, wanted yes. to learn about it. Yes, yes. So my first thing into... into um, Christianity was, I remember I went to the Church of England school and the vicar apparently told my father, I found out later from my mum said, you know, Mr. Salmon you don't need to send your children to church, you're Jewish after all he said, but I don't want them to feel any different well how could we feel any more different than that so I did go into the church and I always remember this, I'd never seen this person before on you know, half naked and all this. And I remember they were saying, you know, you have to kneel. And there was this cassock and it was like this dirty pillow thing that you, 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 you knelt on, you knelt on, yeah. And I remember them saying the, sh the um, I was saying the Shema and they were saying the Lord's Prayer. So that's one of my <laughs> memories, right? I don't know how long I went. I lasted there. I don't know. I have no idea. But all I know is I then went to the convent of the Ladies of Mary. And we had religious instruction. And there was a sister Koska who realized that I needed to know something about my identity, my Jewish identity. So I remember once she said to me, would you be able to tell us about your traditions? I know you have Passover and that's very important to us because that's our Lord. Of course. Sort of yeah. The Seder, whatever. So, um, yeah, okay. I said, I'll, I'll tell you what I know, but I don't know very much. Okay, she said, so go home, speak to your family, bring back what you need to and then come. So I did all that two or three times. And then I went to my father and said, Dad, you've got to teach me. I've got to find out. So he taught me Hebrew. And then he said, I, maybe I should find you a teacher. I said, yeah. So we had someone who had taught my cousin for his bar mitzvah. It was called Mr. Norton Wayne. Um, and I think he was a tailor in Bar Street in Scarborough. And every Sunday morning I would go there 
and his wife would answer the door and she had these bulbous eyes I always remember with tears coming down you know not because she was tearful but because she had these these streaming eyes and I remember I couldn't bear look at it anyway for so for two hours on a Sunday we did um, Hebrew grammar I must say my Hebrew you wouldn't have thought that I had <laughs> today. So, Anna, living the life that you live today yeah. in orthodoxy and looking back yes. to where you came from, what? how do you feel about that? What do you feel was... Because everything happens for a reason or a purpose yes, or something. Absolutely. And you had this orthodox grandmother, so you could very well have had that orthodoxy, but you didn't. You got to teach some Catholics about Judaism. Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting childhood. Yeah. And now you ended up religious. You ended up religious. Isn't that interesting? So she was our rock. Nani Simcha was so strong in her emunah, in her Yiddishkeit. Now, we didn't understand her because she spoke Arabic and her English was so limited, you know. But I did, we did do some English by radio, so we understood a bit, but the nuances of life and everything. But somehow, by osmosis, she transmitted. I love Sometimes her, you Israel and Judaism. Yes. Somehow you don't need to. I remember reading something just now about a translation and he said, no, you don't need to translate at all. It was a, it was a Yiddish thing. You don't need to translate. I understand because you're saying it from the heart. Yes. You don't need. So it was, it was like that. And her love of, of Israel, she used to be the, the number one JNF contributor of the north of England. And because what she used to do, for anybody who would come, she would put out the JNF box and she'd say, she wouldn't say no because she was not Yiddish, but she'd say, come on, let's see the colour of your money, right? So they would she put was out a good fundraiser. Oh, she'd been put out, no, not enough, more, come on, and she'd put the notes. She'd, so, she'd fold them and put them in the JNF box. So that love of Israel was mm. always there. And now you have a home that you know that she would be very proud of yes. and that she would love. And you've got two children of your own now. Did they continue? Are they orthodox? They follow an orthodox lifestyle? No, well, my son is less. I mean, but they've lived an orthodox lifestyle. What can we take? You know, I must tell you, Lily, when you're a Balshuva, as I am, it's much harder in some ways than being from from birth. Because the children say, but mummy, you weren't from. You didn't keep kosher. You didn't keep Shabbos. So, well, I, you know, I, 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 everybody has to go their own path. Exactly, exactly. And the fact that your kids um, can reflect and make their own choices of course, of is course. a good thing. But so. they had an Orthodox Jewish education. They went to Libli Yavna College. They went to Israel for a year. And chose um, not to be. Um, and yet you had a Catholic education, yeah. but chose to be. I'm not saying be. that they chose not to be. They are. They're, they're, they're Jewish in their, in their own way. One is more from than the other. My daughter is very from. My son keeps what he keeps. Do I went to I mean? Bethrifka Ladies College yes, and I exactly. don't keep anything. Okay. We were never religious. Yeah. But we came from Russia. Yes. So I wanted to know, and I'm very connected to Israel, but you do what is right for you, and yeah. that's the yeah. beauty of yeah. 
a being a human being with yeah. your own mind you make your own choices mm. And, mm. and those things but it's the experience yeah. that you make and to get it, through life yeah and and the nachos that you get from your children is, is just fantastic to see my son now and his ethics and his morality and you know he's just such a, a wonderful human to being and, and you, my daughter yeah absolutely now you've you had an almost marriage, and I'll use almost marriage because that's sort yeah, of you I phrase it, it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and this first experience of marriage was, was saw you being in an abusive relationship yes. with yes. a Jewish man, with yes. an Orthodox man as well? So-called Orthodox. So-called yeah, Orthodox. He was, yeah. So he was Jewish. But what was it like to live through and survive that kind of relationship because there's a huge focus on it now Mm, mm. and tell me a little bit about what it was like then Mm. I think the first thing as you pointed out is also you've got to trust in your intuition my intuition said to me this is wrong and sometimes even today I, I, I do something and I think no this is wrong, but I still continue to do it. How can I do that after all these years? So I think that's the first thing. What, especially a woman's intuition, we are, have really got something. We have more wisdom, we have whatever. So you ended up marrying this fellow this anyway. Despite the fact. For a good reason, because you wanted to stay in Australia, you didn't want to go back. So you had other reasons for not listening to I did, to but what I'm saying was there was the pull. Yes. I had a rabbinical pull that was really the right one, Rabbi Apple. And then I had this other pull that was um, from my sister and from uh, her mentor. Right. And somehow they built this thing up, you know, this was good and whatever. But my first reaction was anybody but him. Mm-hmm. How could you say that to somebody? Mm-hmm. Anybody but him, then just, go, then just go against it. So what was it like living with it? Well, it was like being in fear every moment not knowing what was going to happen. I mean, it could be that the whole house could be destroyed in, in, in a moment, that the, 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 the drawers and things could be taken out, that, that the typewriter could go through the window. Anything could happen, and I was in fear of my life, and I was, I was had escaping. You heard, had you heard about abusive relationships before? Did you know anybody that had I lived I read a book, because I studied sociology and psychology, so I knew, really. There was this book called Don't Scream Too Loudly or The Neighbours Will Hear by Erin Pissing, mm. who set up the, the women's refuge movement in England. And I never forget this book. It had such um, a pull on me and I was reading it and thinking, oh my God. And it was about all everybody. It can happen to anybody at any time. It's not just all the people that you think it is. It's the most middle-class people. It's doctors. It's everybody. And that had a big, big influence on me. So I knew that it could happen. Now, did I know people at the time? Yes. I had a friend who'd been through an abusive relationship, but honestly don't think as bad as what I went through. And it was three years that you stayed in it. What was the, what what kept you there, do you think? Well, I left three times. The third time I was lucky, right? He so tried I, to kill you He tried as to well. kill me three or five times, actually. Once on a precipice, we, we, we came from a, from a, well, this is ridiculous. I was doing mashkiach work with him. 
and um, something would happen and he would get people irate. that don't know what Bashkir oh sorry is. about that yeah supervising Kashrut yeah um, and I used to do it at the Hilton Hotel and various places Walpa Hospital and this one was at a camp and I don't know what happened but I remember him taking me to this cliff and I thought he was going to push me down I thought he was going to throw me down this cliff you know it was and something with a knife or something I've got these vague ideas and he tried to strangle me once but you still went home with him I still went home and he said to me let me take you to a hospital please let me take you to a hospital crazy yeah just so crazy. that's why awareness is yeah. so big now yeah. and so important. Mm. And they actually, and getting in touch with yeah. an organization that yeah. helps women like that. 1800 Respect. They're incredible. And they, as soon as you ring them, they listen to you, they hear your story, and then they make sure um, that you, they put you in touch with their safe steps as well and 1800 Respect. And between the two organizations, they help you to get out of that situation in the most safe and way. And thank God there are so many more um, ways to get help now yes. and so many yes. more organisations. And luckily you did manage to finally get out yes. of all of that and found a man that you've been very, very happy yes. with from That's what right. I can see That's myself right. as right. well. Yes. Tell me the story about how you met this oh, husband. Okay. So I was in Melbourne again not for very long, for a week or so, staying with Robertson Groner, who I'd met in Sydney. And um, Rabbi Groner was away, and it was so lovely being with Robertson Groner. What a special woman she, she was. I was so privileged to have had her. I would stay up till one, two in the morning. We would talk and we would talk. Anyway, um, my friend Sippy Oliver, who I'd known since I'd arrived in in, in, in in Sydney actually she invited me for a Shabbos so I went one Shabbos and said please stay so this was like she knew about your previous experience oh, yes yes she knew two or three weeks after I arrived she said I want you to stay we're inviting people so she invited people her husband invited people and we ended up with so many men not many women so I was kind of surrounded by these men and at the end of the the, 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 the Shabbos, she said, now, Hannah, what do you think? Who did you like? Who did you fancy? I said, I think so-and-so. I spoke to him at the beginning of the evening, the beginning of the Shabbos meal. No, 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 Hannah, he's not for you. He's not from enough for you, so forget him. Anybody else? So I said, oh, there was a guy opposite <laughs> me. And we were talking, and his eyes just kind of were so piercing. And when we were talking about politics, we were talking about his intellectual things. He just absolutely captivated me. So, oh, she said, sure me, because they knew his name. It was actually Shatach, but in English it was Shermi. She said, Kasriel Shermi, why didn't we think of him? He was at school with you and he was at Yeshiva Gadova with you. So anyway, so I think uh, he rang and we went out. Well, the first time we went out, Lily, you wouldn't believe this. I wasn't feeling very well. Somehow, something told me, sorry about that. That's all Somehow, right. <laughs> something told me, I'm not going to delay this. So I went, remember, remember going to the Rubenfelds, Rabbi Rubenfeld and Miriam for Shabbos. And I spoke to him about it. I don't know, I came up with the idea, well, let's see, we'll go. I'll go out with him. So, 
Minna Gordon went to the I was staying with Minna Gordon and Rabbi Gordon. Minna came to the door and answered the door. And she said, would you be able to take Hannah to the doctor? <laughs> that was my first date. He took me to the doctor. He did not come with me to the doctor. And then we went to the chemist. And after that, we went to Cafe Carlisle. And I remember eating this lasagna. And I started to feel sick. I said, Jeffrey, we better go home. So that was our first date. The first, then it was Melbourne Cup Day. We went to the Botanical Gardens and that was really the first date. And it was so funny because he had the Age newspaper and at the time I was doing work with the Age. Some work with, or actually on, on this very subject of domestic, domestic violence. And I remember ringing him up and saying, would I be able to have your, borrow your age? You know, like, you know, so funny. So you knew so, you liked him and yeah. you were sort of mutually flirting. Yeah, it was really something. And it was not long, you know, like, I remember. But being able to get into a new relationship yeah. like that yeah. after what you had experienced to start with was really an important thing for you. Yes, yes. Mm. I think what helped was that there was a period of a gap between my get and my civil divorce. And that was a period of almost a year, about nine months. And that's when all the wonderful things happened. My year that made me, you know how they do the year that professionally. Made, was 1987. It was 1987 where I interviewed Bob Hall, the Prime Minister on Israel totally off my own bat. I want to understand why would he be so pro-Israel and come as an agnostic. And, um, and also being with the Israel Philharmonic Orchestra in many countries, including in Auschwitz. Um, so having that distance Talk a little helped. bit about your broadcast career during that year. What was it? What were the things that, that happened during that year that, that got you into these wonderful interviews. Yeah, no, I was very, very fortunate. Um, well, I did my first broadcast was for a, Jew, a Jewish radio station because I went to Radio National. In those days, you could just walk in. You know, it's very different from yes. today. And I remember seeing that well, it was the history unit and I saw this guy called... Stephen Rapley and asked him, how do I get into it? What do I do? So he said, start off with a student radio station. So it so happened that the Israel Philharmonic Orchestra were playing at the Opera House. So I just waltz into the Opera House. Now, Shabbos is coming out late and it's the summer. So I just arrive at the stage door and I say, I want to interview Zubin Mehta. This is me, you know? Yes. Well... There was a guy there who was one of the management team of three, who's called Yaakov Mishori. And I told him what I wanted to do. And he said, well, maybe we can arrange something. Well, it took a while, but I actually did it. So I interviewed him and I had this little Sony recorder and it was strapped with some elastoplast. Anyway, I interviewed him and I think it was in the, in the, in, in the hotel room, in the hotel where they were did this interview and then I took it back. Oh my gosh, it hasn't come out. So I went back. So your fix-it didn't work and the recorder didn't the recorder work. The recorder didn't work. It was ridiculous. I still had it and I didn't get anything new. And the guy who brought him out to Australia was called Israel Blankfield. Many people knew him very well. 
And so he managed to get Zubin Mehta to come back on a pretext to his home. And he didn't tell him why. And then he, afterwards he didn't. So he started off the interview. Am I angry with you? And that's how we started the interview. Anyway, look, as a result of that interview, I got it on the, um, the, the radio program, the, the Jewish radio program. And then one thing led to another, led to another. And I ended up in London. Um, interviewed, I interviewed Yitzhak Perlman. I went to um, Poland and accompanied them as a, as a journalist, just independently. I had photos taken. I took a photographer with me. I had black and white photographs through Auschwitz just to see their faces, Lily. It was unbelievable. And Zubin had this idea, he wanted to play the Hatikra there, which sounded an interesting idea, but there were two people from the Holocaust and they were just, couldn't even think about it. Wow. They were on Valley and they couldn't even, you know. What a shame, it. because did he end up playing? No. No, They just couldn't do it. It was just too much for them. Yes, but such triumph over evil. Yes, yes. What a lovely idea. What an amazing guy Zubin Mehta is. What an incredible guy. He said, this is my family. We're the most beautiful bunch of human beings. And they all absolutely loved him. And um, so so then I went to Haifa and uh, Tel Aviv with them. and yes. And what did you do with all of those interviews that you captured? Oh, okay. Um, so they went on that program. Um, no, what did I do with the rest of them? Did you? Did they, did they go on to Radio National? I were they broadcast? Remember. Did they you create broadcast. a series? Or they were broadcast. I'm just wondering if they went on to Radio National. They were my like my first ones on Radio National. Um, so Radio National came in. So 87, I came back and I started broadcasting in 87, 88 um, and went... And you really just pushed your way into wherever you wanted to go. I did, really. Which is a wonderful thing. But I found that the religious programs were so lovely. And I got to know a guy who was a priest. He was a Lebanese... Lebanese um, Orthodox, Lebanese Orthodox priest... Um, called um, Stephen Godley. What a name for it. It's amazing. And he liked my work. So every fortnight I had an interview interspersed with music and I, I had a typewriter in those days, you know, and I wrote on ABC, you know, it was yeah. quite funny. And uh, that's how I started. So I think I started off with that, with those. And then I got people from the community who were artists, who were Hazan, Different, mostly orthodox, but not all, and rabbis and everything. And that's how I started. So I started in Sydney, came to Melbourne, and continued in Melbourne. And then Bob Hawke. Oh, Bob Hawke. That was also 86. Did you go into politics, or it was just Bob Hawke was an opportunity? I was involved in the labor labor movement for many Ah. years, and I I still am. Um, uh, Yes, that's always been part of my whole being I've never been a councillor or anything like that but um, in our family everybody voted conservative I've, we voted Labour I voted Labour anyway um, 
Yes, so, so, so politics, yeah, was part. And you were doing you were doing all of these wonderful interviews and broadcasts and you were happy with that part of your life. You were well into your 30s because yes. you were 31, I think, when you That's got right. here. And then you decided you really needed to be married or what was the, the impetus? Oh, for getting married. The visa was running out there. Ah. The visa was running out. So mm. then you had the help of the wonderful Sippy Oliver and you met your husband and it was a completely oh, no, 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 different no. experience. So the 31 was when I got married and the visa was running yeah. out. The second time was with Sippy, was with Sippy yes. and I met Jeffrey, And it was short, short and sweet. I mean, two months we were engaged. engaged. Another two months we were married. And then you had two children. Yeah. And so it's it's been a wonderful, very different experience. But what I want to tell you about, though, is something else. Here we are with COVID. Here we are with mental health. And we have got a mental health program on Ben Morley, haven't we? So it's all had an effect. Imagine if you go through these experiences. You go through um, an abusive relationship. What's the effect it has on a person? Now, I suffered from postnatal depression with my two children. Perhaps Both because, of them. Yeah, perhaps because I was late. You know, perhaps because I had my two children late. I was 38 and, well, 37 and 38. It wasn't so late. I was so proud because I did mention that. Um, two natural childbirths, 28 hours and 26 hours with nothing. So I God was really bless. proud of that. <laughs> but I did have these post, um, what do you call it? Um, postnatal. Oh, thank you. Postnatal depression. And that's also something else that Sippy has, has been very importantly, has brought out. Because so many people have suffered from it and it's been one of those things mm. that people haven't talked about. So I remember being very um, uh, not ashamed of it, but I didn't want to admit it, you know, mm. that I had it. And then I had my first manic episode. Um, my daughter was only a year old and... Um, so that was the beginning of bipolar. So I've been through quite a bit. How long did you have bipolar before it was diagnosed? Or? Interesting. I'm not sure. I think the catalyst was the abusive relationship. Well, I'd like to think that anyway. I do think so. It doesn't really matter. It but doesn't matter. But I, then there was the post. Then there was the postnatal depression, um, and then I had this one manic episode. Probably had one or two since then. What does it? feel like to be in the midst of something like that are you aware that your behavior is not normal what was what your normal behavior is by your standard are you aware when you're going through it or is it something that you can only see afterwards I was aware that in some way I was out of control. I mean, you can imagine at midnight, leaving, going in the car, my husband not knowing where I was going, you know. I just had to somehow get out. And yes, so aware, but... And you had a one-year-old child yeah, as well. exactly, exactly. Well, she was okay. 
Um, but where did my, where did the car go? Where did the car? I mean, I wasn't one of those people who could who could drive to places that I don't know where I'm going. I have to drive to places where I know I'm going. So where did I end up? End at my in-laws' house at <laughs> midnight. And I remember my father-in-law answering the door, just very hello. How are you coming? You know, like <laughs> normal. <laughs> you know, just calm me down. Would you like to speak to Jeffrey? Would you like to tell him you're here? You know, nothing. So, you know, no, would you like to speak to Jeffrey and tell him you're here? You know, so of course. So it was just interesting. So that was that. Um, is it something yeah. that you still need to monitor and yeah, in yourself? Yeah, bipolar is not easy. It's, it's not easy. It, are you on medication? Are you still yeah. on medication? Yes. yes, I still am. And it's not easy. Um, uh, you have bipolar and then there's depression and then there's anxiety you know there's all these things yeah. you know and that's the big thing that's come out of covid not come out of covid was always there yeah. mental yeah. health was always there but as you say it wasn't talked about yeah. people didn't want to admit it yeah and I think the fact that people are talking about it now is a really a good, thing. good thing, not only for the people going through it, but also for future generations. Yes. You see, Lily High on Life is all about change your attitude, change your life. That's right. Which is lovely and it's easy mm. to say. And I do believe that. And there are different skill sets that you can be trained in. But having said that also, I acknowledge that um, that medications also work mm. for different things. But, but yes, Lily, but I've always been one who, as I said, you know with my with my child with my birth childbirth, see how I'm proud I am that I never had to take any medication, I never had to have any 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 procedures or anything so for me to take medication is a massive thing you know? and now now when do you feel a um when, you, when you're going to have a bout or or when you feel something coming on can you actually feel it or does it actually arrive oh, you good point good you, point am i aware of the triggers i mean i i i took i didn't bother to tell you this i said it's psychology I did psychology mm -hmm. and sociology. I did seven years of psychoanalysis, Jungian psychoanalysis. It cost me a house. I remember paying, I remember mm. what it was, for seven years. So I should really know myself. And I should really, shouldn't, I shouldn't, shouldn't say should. Isn't exactly. Shouldn't say should, right? <laughs> I expect that I know myself. But having said that, I need the people in my life, which is my husband and my children, to give me a guide and say to me, Mummy, on a scale of naught to ten, you're high, you're seven. Mm -hmm. Or, Mum, on a scale of naught to ten, you seem a bit low, maybe four. And I used to get my kids to do this. Mm. And my husband still does it to a certain degree. Um, Does that keep you off the medication? No, still on it. Still on, on it. it. I wish I wasn't. I yeah. really wish I wasn't. No, well, there are, you know, you pick up, you can pick up habits across your yeah. lifetime. Yes. And some habits are helpful and others not so much. But also, 
it's about feeling good what mm. makes you feel mm. better mm. now when you're feeling low you don't feel better you don't feel better but if you ask yourself the question or get into the habit of asking the question what do i need to do to what feel do better I need to do to feel better and your mind will come up with yeah. something mm. so one of the things that mm. i talk about is that when you're feeling high and when you're feeling good then make a list of all the things that make you feel better mm. because you've got access to those yes. things when you're feeling good so make that list have at least 10 things on that list and when you feel you're not feeling that good just find the list mm. and choose one <laughs> doesn't matter which one you're so right. It's, it's behaving yourself mm -hmm. into a place because the most important thing is you feeling good. Mm. And that's different for everybody. That's why people take drugs. They just mm. want to feel better. It's not that they're bad, evil people. No. So it's just finding things that are not illegal yeah. <laughs> that make you, feel, make you good. feel good. And, you know, when you're working, it's one thing. And when you're not working, it's something else. You know, you've got the time. You've... Um, you know, so having been through what you've been through in your life, and there's a lot more that we haven't talked about, but ups and downs. I mean, when you were living, even as a child, you went through different experiences and then your teenage years and then coming to Australia and with the first marriage and the second marriage and everything that looking back on it, what would you say? that you have discovered about your, especially with the psychoanalysis that you mm. did and the psychology, what do you think you really know about yourself today that is an insight into you? Mm. Well, I want to tell you that at 67, no, I'm actually 68 years old. I'm going to be 69 in a few days' time. I just can't believe it. A few weeks' time. No, it's a few days' time. My Hebrew birthday is very soon. Oh, okay. Okay. I'm surprised how little I understand myself. How little I know myself. I think I knew myself better at half my age than I do now. I mean, I don't know what to say to you, but this is interesting. It's just unbelievable. Are there still things you want to do? All I have ever wanted to do, Lily, since I was 18 years old, when I first went to Israel, is to live in Israel. And I've been telling myself and everybody, and my husband and my children, that we're gonna be there, and we should be there by now. But we're not. And I've been in this position before where I was living in England and it was easy to go and live in Israel. Mm -hmm. For some reason I wasn't. I went for my first year placement, I went for my second year, and I'm still not there. All these years, all I have ever wanted to do, as I've told myself, is to live in Israel because I, to me, Israel is the only place for us. We are so, so, blessed to have Israel after 2,000 years. How can we not be there? How can we still remain here? 
the miracles israel is the biggest miracle in the world yes <laughs> and we are still here living our lives here and if the pandemic hasn't done anything it should have made me and everybody who's had this dream to just forget everything and just go there but somehow I still have all my possessions. I still have all this clutter. Yes. And I just find it hard to get rid of it. It's not that it's any good. I just find it really hard to get rid of anything. Does your, is your husband open to going, to moving to Israel? He was up to a certain degree and now I'm not so sure. But we need to be there. Yeah, it's a mental thing, you know. It's like one thing at a time. Yeah, yeah. And you start to get rid of one box at a time. And yeah, that's you, right. We're yeah. starting. So, what was your question? Because it was such a good question. <laughs> I, don't I was it. just asking you because of yeah. the, you did this course in psychology and you did all of this mm. um, therapy, and you've had ups and downs in your life that have been at extremes and now that you are in your late 60s which is young it's not old today at all mm. um i feel i'm close to your age and i feel 15 a lot of the time yes, exactly. and i have a niece that tells me off she goes you're, you're acting like a child and i'm mm. like well why aren't you i really you know and it's, so you're as old as you feel so reflecting back on everything let me ask it a different way is there anything you would have changed or done differently? Just keeping in mind, we've got about two minutes left. <laughs> yes, I would not have married the, the guy I married. Um, I would have listened to Rabbi Apple and gone to New Zealand, as he told me to do. I think one of the things that I have learned is how important it is when you ask advice to listen to people. And I think so often I've done that and I haven't listened to people. I've gone my own way. And the other thing is intuition. We do have intuition and listen to your intuition. What your intuition says, you do, especially as a, as a woman. And there's just so much I, uh, I want to. That's so important to listen to your intuition mm -hmm. and do what you want to do. Do what makes you feel good. <laughs> that's a nice way to, yeah. to wrap it all up because that's what Lily High on Life's all about. It's mm -hmm. do the things that make you feel good. 